And this is the word of God. Amen? Amen. Attention. How to obtain and retain the attention of our hearers. That is the title of the ninth lecture that the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said to his students in his pastor's college. So to me this morning, to the preacher, Spurgeon would warn. He would warn against boring or not put together or unattentive preachers, that is, unattended to their audience. And he would say things like this, quote, care very little whether they are attended to or not, so long as they can hold on. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Let me, let me, let me make this quote make sense. I'm so sorry. He would warn to not be a preacher that thinks like this, a preacher that cares very little whether they are attended to or not. He says of these preachers, so long as they hold on uh, through the allotted time, some preachers think that it is of very small importance to them whether they're people here for eternity or here in vain. Spurgeon said the sooner that such ministers sleep in the churchyard and preach by the verse on their gravestones, the better. That's pretty harsh, but it's true, and it's a warning to me. My attention to your attention is necessary. And this counsel translates into a preacher being hopefully prepared, having prayed, understood the weightiness of the situation, outlining passages helpfully, understanding the responsibility, ultimately the weight that is in preaching the truth of God's word. Trembling and humbly, I hope I've done that today. Now to the congregation, that's you this morning. Spurgeon also would be far more gentle, yet pointed in showing the danger of not paying attention to the word of God, and the preached word of God especially. Of congregations, he says, quote, to some of our people, it is not so easy to be attentive. Many of them are not interested in the matter, and they have not yet enough of any gracious operation on their hearts to make them confess that the gospel is of any special value to them. Concerning the Savior, whom you preach, you may say to them, and he quotes an old hymn, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Is it nothing to you that Jesus should die? He says, many of them have through the week been borne down by the press of busyness and business cares. They ought to roll their burden on the Lord, but maybe they fail to. Don't let that be you. It's a warning here. As a congregation, as a listener, you get to come and hear Your attention is necessary, and this counsel translates into clearing your mind today, fitting, excuse me, fighting, fighting through distractions that may appear, making notes if possible, or certainly memory of scriptural truths, listening with anticipation. Our responsibilities to adhere to the preached word are great, both preacher and listener. But here's why. Our reward is greater. Our reward is greater. Our text this morning shows both. It shows the preacher who's preaching and the listener who's listening. And the preacher is the Apostle Paul. And the listeners are the Jews in the synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia. Today's sermon is just what you heard, nothing more. But we need to understand it. Because deeper still is a message that hopefully every preacher in every congregation, if they're preaching the word of God, believes. The Holy Spirit is the one teaching in the moment. 
That's the hope. God himself is speaking through his word. My challenge to us at this introduction's end is this. Let me and you, let us together this morning, fight in our responsibility to listen, to preach, and to listen to the one, the Holy Spirit of God, the great one who can really work grace into the heart of hearers. To do so, we're going to consider Paul's preaching, and we're going to do it in an outline. I'm going to give Paul an outline. So I think if he had an outline, it would be like this. Four points today. Grace remembered. You'll see that in verses 13 through 22. Grace revealed. You'll see that in 23 through 25. Grace rejected. Seeing it in verse 26 through 29. And then applied, verses 40 and 1. And then finally, grace that remains. We'll see that in 30 through 39. And then he applies it. Uh, Well, Luke does in 42 and 43. But let's back up. Let's see this first point. Paul preaching starts with, it's all of grace, in case you can't tell, right? It's all of grace. But he starts when he's speaking to these Jews with grace remembered. Now, so much of what you remember is because of your culture and your upbringing. Hope you know that. It makes no sense to other people a lot of times what makes sense to you. Memories work like that. You smell something and one person says, well, that stinks. And another person says, that reminds me of blank. My wife has fond memories of watching WWE Smackdown with her dad. I have zero memories and honestly, very little respect for WWE Smackdown. And yet, the difference between talking about wrestling has an impact on me and my wife. Why? Memories have been stored up. This text, memory of grace, relies on its context, not just here, but on a very large context, a scale related to an entire people called Israel and their past. Paul banks on their memory. Paul and company have arrived in this Greek city. This is not Antioch, as we've learned in previous chapters. This is Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, you You can learn in your Bible study time why all these cities were named Antioch. It's fun, but, uh, but I'll leave that for you. They enter it there, uh, the city, but they specifically go to a Jewish synagogue. That's important for the fact that we're talking about God's grace being remembered because Paul starts there. there. The memory of grace needs to be seen. It needs to be seen if you're going to study this passage this morning with us uh, from a Jewish perspective. Let me just show you at a glance Paul's introduction. I said verse 13 through 22 is where this grace remembered is preached, right? Will you look at it with me? So look at verse 14. There's some clues. So there it's the Sabbath day. Now, if you're just reading this as a non-Jew, it means nothing to you. But if you're a Jew, you got memory of something. You have a memory of God's fourth commandment. You have a memory of the keeping the Sabbath holy. Maybe there are many Sabbaths in your memory as you go to synagogue that day to remind yourself, I have heard from God before. I want to hear from him again. It's verse 15, the reading of God's word, the law and the prophets. That means nothing to you unless you understand this was God's word given throughout hundreds of generations, not just thousands of years. Think about this. Hundreds of generations of people going to synagogue, taking their children in hopes that God's going to speak. A prophet speaking, being recorded, written down, and then treasured among his people. You got to see verse 17 when it says quickly that in Paul preaching, grace remembered, it says, hey, remember in the land of Egypt with uplifted arm? There's our Bible study keys tell us what an anthropomorphism, right? I think that's how you say that. I never can say that word. 
Uh, it's, it's God doesn't have an actual arm, but, but, but the language here should strike a memory in the Jewish person to hear, oh, I remember this. It's with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm that he spread his wings over Israel like a mother hen. And he brought them under his rest, under his you know, brood. He, he had them and they uh, would not be let go. That means nothing to you if you don't know the mighty acts of God's love. You know, God loved them when they were in Egypt. He singled them out when they were in Egypt. It seemed like everyone had forgotten them, but God remembered Israel. That's what they thought, and grace should have shown up in it. I think they even think of, when they hear that, grace found in the plagues. Now, it's a, it's a plague on their enemy, but it was a rescue for them. In one verse, in 17, Paul wants to address that God fed them from heaven. They ate from God's own hand. The heavens opened, food fell down. Water burst out of rocks to quench their thirst in those days. They found favor from kings in lands that they were allowed to travel through safely. The grace listed in that one verse is overwhelming, but it doesn't ring in your heart if you don't know their story. And Paul's preaching and he's reminding them. Some strange affection that you feel for the 4th of July tomorrow, you're going to get bombarded with cultural representation of ice cream or pies or hot dogs or smells or fireworks or things that you'll remember in your childhood. And you'll say, oh, I remember. I remember them think, telling me about our nation and the birth of it. And, and it will mean more to you than the 4th of July means to someone across the world. God did communicate through cultural grace. I mean, he, he, he had this common grace for Israel. And for about 40 years, verse 18 says, he put up with them in the wilderness. So it wasn't just all like bells and whistles and sweet manna from heaven. It was also the fact that God put up with them. Paul's being very intentional there. I mean, they would remember being, you know, the stories of what? The, the stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious people that wouldn't follow Moses. God wanting to destroy them, but never doing it, preserving them. Sure, his judgment would appear at time, but what would happen? He would leave them better off than they were before after he would judge by giving them more gifts. That is grace. God did it more than anywhere else over and over again with these people, even though they hardened their hearts toward him. Finally, 19 through 21, I mean, what does he cover there? Paul's showing, if you're preaching with him, he's saying, do you remember the grace in our history? See, their history was conquest, granted, to go and to conquer their enemies. God fought their battles for them literally. Land and peace given to them literally. Judges to preserve justice. A prophet named Samuel is named and he comes after the justice has been so perverted by the judges that it needed a truth speaker. God gave it to him. God was raising up a witness and a preacher for these people. You don't know the depths of grace in these things unless you see that alongside all these wonderful gifts of God, Israel's sin was leading them to believe God didn't love them. Their sin would lead them away from the grace they should remember, and God would have to remind them. Paul's preaching that. He's preaching remembered grace here for a reason. Verse 22 shows an ultimate point of grace. It says, and when he had removed him, and he's talking about King Saul, Look with me in verse 22. It says, He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. 
You may know, but if you don't know, David reigned. And he, when he reigned and as a king, it was a golden age of Israel. But we know this David, don't we? He wasn't perfect. But he was a good model. He was the best model for the people that they had ever had. And yet even he fell to sin. Even he was lost. Even he witnessed the nation ripped apart. It's under David's kingdom that they become two nations as it's split. You see, there's a grace remembered for each person ever made, ultimately. You can read this passage this morning. I'm preaching it this morning. Yes, we may need to get back to their culture. I would do an injustice to say the thrust of this is somehow to make it about 2022 only. It's not. You should understand grace remembered for your own life in 2022 through the lens of God's profound faithfulness and grace to a people Israel that you had no business being a part of, but he's made you a part of. So we put on their lens to arrive to this conclusion. James 1.17. You want to talk about grace? Talk about it like this. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Me and you, if we're going to preach with Paul, if we're going to understand and be spoken to this morning, we need to realize everything you and I have, it comes from God and it includes all the good memories or anything that we possess. Let me tell you a story recently in conclusion of this first point. I've been evangelizing a young man and we've been talking a lot and he's rejected the gospel, walked away from the church after being sinned against pretty greatly. And as we're talking, it's hard for us to maybe get to the more explicit things, but we've been talking a lot lately about common grace. And as I reflected on this first point, remembering grace, grace remembered for the people of Israel, um, I was really reminded of all the opportunity I have, not with this, just with this young man, but with, with other people to experience God's good creation together. And that there is something really wonderful about opportunities we have to share like time and conversation and coffee and sweets and good burgers and, and memories together with people made in God's image. But I, I want to warn you, for, and as I warn myself, another thing caught me in this opportunity we must remember that if, if grace is to be remembered, if it's common grace, common grace that gives way to revealed grace, that's what slows the sting of death. That's what becomes the real kick in, help, ointment in life. It's a common grace that is uh, making, it's giving way, it's causing a revealed grace to show up. But common grace, remembering grace, that never moves to revealed grace. It doesn't slow down life's pace. It increases that race straight to hell. It's a dangerous warning. We can remember God's grace. We can see his goodness. We see it in Israel. We can understand it in every scoop of ice cream we eat. We can remember it in the sex we have. We can remember it in the time we spend having fun outside in creation. We can know it in amusement parks and technology. You can have an iPhone and, and be mesmerized every update of how cool it works. You can share that with other people. If you don't get to the root of why it's good, why it's more than common, why it can't just be remembered, the memory, the memory has to send you somewhere. And if it doesn't send you to revealed grace, hear me, it will, expe- it will speed up the race to hell in a lost person's life. That's a warning for the church to to be about common grace that leads to revealed grace. I think it's a warning to the Christian also. Start with memory. Remember God's grace. Don't stay there. 
Experience it, experience it. And that's second what happens in the sermon. Grace revealed. Grace common, right, that is remembered, remembered grace, turns into grace revealed. Verse 23 through 25, look at the revelation. It's of this man's offspring, that's David's descendant, Paul preaches, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. That's beautiful. Before his coming, John the Baptist was proclaiming repentance to the people of Israel. John was finished. And as he finished his course, verse 24 and 25, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No. Behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. At this point, memory of it or not, know what was just read to you again about God this morning. See, this is how revealed grace works. In the preaching hour in Antioch, Pisidia, in the synagogue, when they, whether they have memory of it or not, whether they were you know, slow of thinking that morning or not, when God chooses to reveal his grace, he doesn't use any smoke and mirrors. If God hid Christ in this history, so they think, Paul's making it clear, let it be known. It's not hidden. It's very explicit. It's revealed. This is the good news. How much more, if they're in need, how much more are me and you in need? So, you know, this is good news. Why? Because ultimately we have nothing to give. I mean, we can, John here is John the Baptist, as I told you. You know, Paul's reminding them of the, the last ultimate example that they had of a man who could maybe be enough, and he wasn't. So John the Baptist, mentioned here after Jesus Christ, is really to kind of uphold Jesus in this point of the sermon, to really say, what was revealed in Jesus? Well, let's consider the greatest person in living memory, Let's consider John the Baptist, who guarantee you had made the news of John the Baptist had made it to Antioch Pisidian. And he's preaching to them in this synagogue saying, let's consider the last living prophet, the one appointed by God, as Micah 4 said, to be the, uh, Malachi 4 said, to be the forerunner before Jesus. You know what he did? He barely carried Jesus' sneakers. <laughs> he, the, who could have maybe kept the common grace Explicitly in, in hopes of salvation, of eternal life, of peace, even he, his whole purpose was to serve one who came. How much more than Antioch Pisidia or Church Redemption Baptist or church throughout ages? How, how much more are we in need of such grace? We barely scratch the surface of John the Baptist's ministry and life. We are in need of something more. If you're a non-believer today, you will know right now, if you're a non-believer, if you listen closely to verse 23, you'll know how one can understand grace revealed. Look again at verse 23. It starts and it says, God. God. That's the creator and the sustainer of everything and everyone for all time. It says, God has brought to Israel. Children, listen. God has brought to Israel, that is, to his people, okay, who are wayward, people full of sin with righteous deeds that are still considered filthy concerning God. God has brought to Israel a Savior, a Savior. 
God is merciful and just. He wants to save sinners. He must punish their sins. And so we need a savior. So God has brought to his people Israel a savior, Jesus. Fully God, fully man. He's full of mercy and perfect justice. He's fully man. He's tempted as we were. He's without sin. He died on a cross, a real death, atoning for sinners, rose again to life, reigns now. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, and get this, and children, especially listen to me here, has he promised? He promised. And adults too, he promised. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. God's promise is Jesus will return. God's promise is that Jesus will raise up those who believe in him. Just like he was raised from the dead, so they will be raised. God's promise is we will enjoy him and his reign forever. We will be with him for eternal life. So we trust and we follow him until then. That is the gospel message that Paul preaches. It is the only power of God to save. And we must hold it out to others as Paul does here. We must hold it out to our children. We must hold it out to the lost world. When that is done, when we hold it out, is by the power of God, God's grace can be revealed for salvation. St. Augustine, 1,600 years ago, reflecting on this nature of God's revealed grace, said it beautifully. He said of God, he said to God, I mean, imagine him confessing, you know, God, you called You cried, you shattered my deafness. You sparkled, you blazed, you drove away my blindness. You shed your fragrance and I drew in my breath and I pant for you. That's that's what it means to understand the irresistibly beautiful grace of God. You see, we present the gospel as Paul did here to anyone and everyone who will hear it. Right? I mean, amen, right? Amen. The church does that. And God truly then reveals grace in the heart of his children. God does this. We dare not mess with that, right? I hope not. Paul didn't. Paul holds out the gospel message to these Jews, and it is uh, never a message of save yourself or do something. Uh, it's, it's revealing God's grace to them uh, in preaching, and they respond. Horatio Bonar, he was a, an, an ancient kind of Irish theologian. He said this, Grace does away with the distance between the sinner and God, which sin had created. Grace meets the sinner on the spot where he stands. Grace approaches him just as he is. Grace does not wait till there is something to attract it, nor till a good reason is found in the sinner for its flowing to him. It was free. Sovereign grace When it first thought of the sinner, it was free grace. Free grace when it found and laid hold of him. And it is free grace when it hands him up into glory. Do you believe this about grace? If it's stated plain, Jim Eliff says it plainly. A seeker becomes a true Christian because God does something. Creating desire for God and a distaste for sin. That's what Paul's preaching. However, there is another side of this. The mystery of rejecting God's grace. Paul's hope for sharing remembered grace 
is that by it, he knows confidently that some may see grace revealed in Christ, but he continues in clarity because we cannot do this act, only God does. And as we continue, we see that Paul preached grace rejected. So it wasn't just grace remembered. It wasn't just grace revealed, though we have hope in that. Is also grace rejected. Um, for our last two points, we're going to consider the response that the text shows us as the people of, of Antioch, uh, Pisidian could have, and then, and, and then actually did have for each point. So, so here is a potential rejection applied. Uh, he's going to preach about it, and then he's going to show a warning. So look in 26 through 29. Paul then is telling them, brothers, you know, brothers and sisters, sons of the family of Abraham, but also those who fear God. So he's talking to both Jew and Gentile who are coming to worship. He says, to us has been sent the me this message, the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, so now he's past tense here, they did not recognize him. They didn't recognize Jesus. Nor understand the utterances of the prophets who had spoken of him. Look again at your Bible, which are read every Sabbath. <laughs> Fulfilled. In Jesus, they were fulfilled. So these men fulfilled the prophets that they ignored, the ones they had read every Sabbath. They fulfilled them by condemning him, that is Christ. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate anyway to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down off the tree and they laid him in the tomb. This is grace rejected. There's little help I can offer today here at RBC to make this preaching of Paul any clearer. So let me attempt to make it as plain for us as it was for them. What they're hearing is that humans, people that maybe some of them can go and visit, not so dead yet. So a very recent event that has happened. But we can say the rebellion of people against God in our rebellion against God, we have been just like these rulers are described in this passage. Paul's preaching it in such a way that they would connect. You may be, you need to be warned. You may be like these people that I'm telling you about and what they did to Jesus. And so, in our rebellion against God, we've been just like these rulers. They're not a special class of sinner because they killed Jesus physically. Rather, they are a living testimony preserved in the sovereignty of and the unknown mystery of God's judgment, for just being completely honest, and yet the goodness of it is that they're preserved in Scripture as an indicative of every human heart. Peter would say to people that weren't there, you killed Jesus. Paul will tell these people what they did, you're guilty of, lest you do what? Repent. So with total confidence, I can say that I am just like them. With total confidence, I can say today, you are just like them, every one of you. All of us have gone astray like sheep, and we have in sin loved ourselves and sin more than God. In sin, you and I don't recognize Jesus as Savior. We recognize him maybe as a bunch of other things, but Savior is not what we recognize him at. Don't believe the word of God to be true. This is what happens in sin. People can be very religious and still miss it entirely. This is true. And at our worst, we cry out, crucify him. That's grace rejected. That is the grace rejected by example. Now look down in the passage. Look at verse 40 and 41 where he applies it. 
This is awesome. Look at 40. So down, this is now connected to that grace denied. In 40 and 41, Paul says, beware. You should underline that. Beware. Be warned, listener. He's preaching, right? Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. So in other words, hey, remember all those prophets these guys have ignored? They ignored it as they missed the Messiah, as they then killed him in fulfillment of some other things God said. Now let me warn you from the word of God again. There is still time. But will you now listen to the prophets? Here's what they say. And then he quotes Habakkuk. Look. Consider. Take a moment. Pause. Look. You scoffer. Be astounded and perish. That could say, be astounded, and in your astoundment, if you miss it, perish. Be astounded or perish. This is very much a, get this or else. The prophet Habakkuk, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. By the way, God is speaking in Habakkuk in this point. For I, God, am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe. Even if one stands up in a synagogue and preaches it to your face in fulfillment of all the scriptures by the power of the resurrection of the Holy Spirit who's witnessing in this moment. Now I'm adding that, but that's what's happening. Quite literally, even if one tells it to you, you won't believe it. Paul quotes one of Israel's ancient prophets, Habakkuk. Now, you need to know, Habakkuk was speaking to Israel, the nation, and he was doing it just before they would be almost entirely wiped out by the military monster nation of Babylon. The Chaldeans were coming, and Habakkuk said this to those people who would not trust God. And God was speaking to Habakkuk and them, warning these Jews. Paul warns these Jews in the synagogues that if they reject Jesus, it will be just like it was for the people in Habakkuk's time and worse. To reject Jesus is to not believe even if one tells it to you plainly. That's what, that's what it means to reject Jesus. And right here, Habakkuk is saying that. And Paul's saying it. And I'm saying it. In clearest terms here, we should understand that Paul seeks to convince he seeks to convince by warning them that they are not the people of God they claim to be if they choose to reject Jesus. They are actually just like the pagan Gentile nations surrounding them in Antioch, Pisidia, if they reject him. And they are bound for the same hell that you and I are bound for if we don't repent and trust Christ. We need to be warned of grace rejected. But grace is not just remembered. It's not just revealed. It is revealed to some who believe, and that's where this conclusion will go, but it can be rejected, as you see Paul preaching about it here. He doesn't hope that anyone will do that, but he's also a wise preacher. He knows what the human heart is. The Holy Spirit is revealing in this moment what the human heart can do. Be warned. And then finally, though, he preaches a conclusion of grace that remains some rejected Paul's preaching, and we will see the, uh, for the rest of Acts that many uh, more, many more, especially among the Jews, will do so. They'll do it spectacularly. Uh, they'll do it violently, actually, uh, to their own destruction. 
But in closing, we need to see that many of them heard grace, remembered grace, and they experienced grace revealed. And they found grace that remains. That's the last point, grace that remains. So again, the remaining, or we could say the keeping grace of God is first preached by Paul. And then we see its application. Now, where is it preached? Look at 30 through 37. For the sake of time this morning, we need to see the essence of Paul's message. Okay, if you look at verses 30 through 37 concerning the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ, Jesus rose from the grave is the essence of Paul's point uh, in 30 through 37. We could actually read 30 through 37 like this. So uh, together. So if you start with verse 30, look at it. But God raised him from the dead. Talking about Jesus. God raised him from the dead and 37's end. He whom God raised up did not see corruption. That's how we can summarize it. Now, in the middle of this truth is the explanation that you and I, like David, are dust. We're worm food. We are taken from dirt and destined to become dirt again. And the only thing that can give meaning to the dust bunnies that are you and I, the vapor that our life is, is a glorious hope that we have in Christ getting out of the grave and us one day getting out of the grave with him. And that's what 30 through 37 is trying to give the listener as it's preached, okay? It is about the resurrection. Christ lives and gives life and meaning to those who have his sustaining grace. We put off this perishable robe when we die and we will die. All of us will die. And there's nothing beautiful or pretty about death. And we have to put off what is destroyable. And then, if we have hope in Christ, Paul is preaching that the way that you could go visit David's body, that's how our body will be. But oh, if you could know this Christ as we've seen him and touched him and ate with him and met him on the road and talked with him and watched him ascend, and know he's there and will come back. On that day, when he does, you'll be like him. Paul will never give up this as the central point of grace that remains. He will never give up of we're almost home. He'll never give it up. That melody will ring in his heart through shipwreck and toil and damaging winds and breaking circumstances and snake bites. This will be at the center of his preaching. It's not only the preaching of grace that remains that Paul gives. He gives something, in my opinion, even more potent and marvelous. And, and, and look at verse 38 and 39. So after he's taught on the resurrection, look at this. He says, let it be known to you, therefore. If that's true, that your grace remains if you've been risen, believe in Christ. Let it be known then, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man, and I say brothers and sisters, not that it's in your Bible, but that's the, the Greek implies everybody listening there. That through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, check this out, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That's free and total forgiveness of every sin that you have ever or will ever commit, forgiveness is yours in Christ when you have the grace that remains. 
by faith. That's what Paul just said. That is scandalous when you think about it, church. Let this be a scandal to you in closing today. The scandal or mystery to us. Man, we grow weary in believing at times, don't we? But let it be known, Paul says. Let me give you a a bit of an analogy. Your life and my life in Christ, if grace is remaining, it's like a junkyard, right? Imagine a junkyard. There's just metal, you know, all over the place. And and a lot of times our lives have become like the junkyard filled with non-precious metals. In other words, sin seems to still remain. We're trying to stay afloat on the grace that remains, but we're really losing sight of the precious metals, the heavy metals, too much aluminum, a bunch of junky cars, a bunch of sin that we can't explain, and the grace of God seems to be going away. But you know what? This passage is teaching about the way you think about your sin, that it is forgiven, that you are freed from everything that would normally bind you. You know what it's like? It's like God's giant magnet. God's grace is like a ginormous magnet over your life, running over all of that junk, leaving all that, pre- all that non-precious metal. But you know what it's going to do? It's going to pick up all the time in you. And you should be picking up all the time on it as you expose yourself to, to more precious things. And, and that gives you hope. There is a lot of grace in me. I'm kept. I'm kept by God. Because he is always showing me there's more metal, there's more, there's more truth. I'm here. I forgive you. You're mine. That's what it means to be freed from everything, every lie of Satan, every despairing moment. Consider the effects of God's grace in this way. It's sanctification. I'll close with this longer kind of story. There's a London minister by the name of Ralph Erkson. And he was speaking, keeping with this idea of precious metals. He was teaching his congregation one morning about the phenomenal reality of God's grace. God's sustaining grace can keep you even when indwelling sin still shows up. He's just teaching on that. He says this. He says, high thoughts that you and I have, high thoughts of Christ, they warm the heart. I mean, that's right. right? High thoughts of Christ warm the heart. Make it burn within And thoughts tend to burn up the corruption. He said, as Christ comes into the heart, sin must go out. And according to the measure and degree of his coming, it does go out. As a talent of gold or some weighty metal falls into a vessel of water, it dashes out all that's in that cup of water to make room for itself. And so Christ coming into the heart of a believer again and again through the sustaining grace of God, dashes out sin to make room for himself. It's a principle. He was teaching. So far as Christ comes in, sin goes out. This is sanctification. Now, those who are living in the sustaining work of Christ's grace, they will be kept. We will grow holy as he is holy. Paul is holding that out to these Jewish men and women that are there and and Greeks alike. Now, for us to apply this, when Paul is saying what he is saying about keeping the law now, it doesn't mean that we are going to be without doubt or difficulty. No, 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 no. If you think putting Christ in and and sin going out is without doubt or difficulty, you have totally missed the point. And Erickson continues here, and I think it's so helpful. So you just listen to this as I read it. This will be our closing point. He says, it is possible, indeed, that a believer that has Christ in him 
may think that he has more sin than ever. And that sin is on the growing hand instead of the decaying one. But believer, if you think that, you're mistaken. It is in this case as it is with a cup of water. If you put silver and gold in a cup and the water swells up, the more you put in, the more will the water swell and it will run over. That you would think there is still more water than there was before, the more gold that is put in. Christ is the tried gold in your life. And the more the vessel of the believer's heart is filled with Christ, the more may sin appear to rise and swell and run all over its banks, make a huge mess on the floor, right, of your life. But hear me. I mean, I love what he says. He says, this frightens and it terrifies the soul, the poor soul of a believer. But it is not that there is more sin. This is so scandalous. It's not that there's more water than before, but more gold is cast in. Only every dash perhaps makes the water flee about. And yet we think that we are so full of sin and corruption as now, yet still it holds good. Christ's coming in makes sin flee out. All right thoughts of Christ are sanctifying thoughts. Now, I'm preaching to a real people this morning. I realize that. Paul was preaching to a real group of people. But this is Paul's message illustrated. Having Christ, though life is difficult, sanctification hurts, is being freed from the punishment of the law of Moses. We see the application at the end. As they went out, like church ended, and as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. I bet that's because they were realizing that their sin was great, but God's done something greater. They realize that from that side of Calvary, a blood flowed that covers their sins. And they know if I can somehow align the sinner that I am under the torrent of that grace, I'll remain. I'll be kept. Put more of that in me. And I don't care how crazy my soul may seem to become. If I have more of him and, and less of me, it'll be, it'll be enough. And after the meeting, when the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts followed Paul and Barnabas. In other words, hey, we're scattered, it's over, and yet they won't, they won't leave them alone. These believers cannot get enough of what? Well, look, what did Paul say to them? What was the urgent message after the message? Listen to it again, verse 43. As they spoke with him, Paul urged them to continue in the grace of God. I bet after you get saved, you're looking for a little bit more, aren't you? Paul has the same message. Oh, you want to know what to do now? Okay, continue. What do you mean, Paul? Like, do, do, we, do we recite more prayers three times a day? Do we, do we go now and fulfill the law like we couldn't? Like, are we able to do that now? Like, do we go and sacrifice more? I mean, is there like some kind of plan? Do we have an agenda? Like, tell us what to do. And Paul, Paul looks at him and he says, genuinely, continue in the grace of God. Well, Paul, can't be that simple. That's frustrating. We get, we get tired of hearing that, right? I mean, it's like a, it's a truncated view. If it's just about one man dying for our sins and rising again and us following him, isn't it more? And Paul says, no, that's it. Continue in the grace of God. Continue there. Don't lose hope there. Do you believe God's forgiven you of your sins? Good. Then go preach forgiveness of sins. Paul wants them to continue in the grace of God. Sermon is over. They want more. How can they have more? Follow Christ and obey him. Now, some of them don't like that, and they'll get angry, and that's next week. 
But for now, it was grace remembered. For some, it was grace revealed. For others, it's grace rejected. For those who are kept, it's grace that remains. Believing a work that is unbelievable, that's Christianity. Hoping in something unseen, that's Christian faith. Assurance of things not yet seen or told, that is the hope we have. And we present that kind of faith to Jesus in eternal life. We present that kind of commitment in our life until then. And we will hear the rights of well done, good and faithful servant. Have you responded like these Jews? You know, I started with the attention call of Spurgeon. It is true. I need to work hard. And I'm trying to have your attention as the preacher. Paul showed that he had the attention of his own in this sermon. And it was glorious. You have to work, and you should work to have attention on the preacher. And the text shows that this group of Jews did just that. They were working to try to listen. But Spurgeon's conclusion to preachers in that chapter regarding attention and interest of congregations to the preached word ended like this. He concludes, at the same time, remember this above all things. It is not by might nor by power that men are regenerated or sanctified, but it is by my spirit saith the Lord. At the end of the day, the Spirit of God was at work at Antioch in Pisidia. And there is no doubt about that. Those who have ears to hear heard. Those who had eyes to see saw. Let us do that together now. I invite you all to respond. Respond with ear, with eye, and with heart, and with song together as we sing. And as we remember in song the precious blood of Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, we come to you before we close in singing wanting to close in prayer. Thank you for Paul's preaching. Thank you for those who heard it and by faith believed. We want to, with trembling hope, name ourselves among them. We pray you'd name those who are in our midst that are lost. You would confidently name them among them as well. May they see that irresistible grace that Augustine so poetically articulated, Lord. And may they breathe in and breathe out with the hope that you've given them a new heart. And Father, we are eager to continue in the grace that you've given us. Help us to do that, God. Give us attention to the things of what we should be about when we scatter. Help us even to think of others and ourselves and you, most of all, as we sing this song and as we pray today, Lord, answer our prayers. And as we go, get, Lord, let us be a scattered people uh, for your glory and your name's sake. And so in all these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.